Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible intimacy coach and fellow podcast host, Kat Lee. Hello, Kat, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really honored that you asked. I'm excited that you're here too. (laughs) And today we're going to talk about self-abandonment in relationships. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, Kat Lee is an intimacy and relationship coach, host of the Empowered Curiosity podcast, and creator of The Heart Lab. Her passion for the last decade has been to walk beside her clients as they learn to cultivate conscious relationships by alchemizing emotions, integrating their stories, and coming back home to the truest version of themselves. Kat facilitates conversations through coaching and on her podcast that guides people to remember their true self, who they are beyond the conditioning, the shoulds, the trauma stories, and the overriding of desires. If you need permission to step into the wholeness of your emotions and being, Kat is here to show you that you have been the one holding the pen. That's a lovely little bio there. How are you today, Kat? (laughs) I'm doing great. It's actually kind of weird to hear you um, introduce me because I'm usually on the other side of the mic. So Mm. I I do a lot of introducing of guests. And so it's fun to be on, on this side. So thank you. Well, you are more than welcome and you should be celebrated because you are doing amazing work in the world. And one of the things you write about and talk about is that intimacy can be a spiritual practice. And one thing that's just come up so many times on the show, even with like the clinicians, even with the PhDs, is they all talk about how we can bring spirituality into all the areas of our life, including our love, intimacy and relationships. So what does it mean to you to have intimacy be a spiritual practice in our life? So that phrase is something that it came to me because when I really sat down with spirituality, spirituality felt sort of out of reach for me for a very long time. I came from a very structured religious background. And so it was very much an external source of where you find connection and power and all of that. And as I got older, I started recognizing in a lot of the books that I was reading and a lot of the mentors that I was seeking out that really spirituality always comes back to the self and how it's really about finding that connection and that power that's that's really beyond our comprehension. But what it does in the tangible world is that it helps bring perspective and meaning and purpose to our lives, right? So I think about intimacy as being two ways to interpret that one word is you can interpret it as intimacy to self and then also intimacy to your partner. And a lot of people are drawn to my work because of the intimacy to partner work. But as we start diving in and unpeeling the layers and the conditions and the stories, we actually start realizing that it all goes back to intimacy of self. And so it's really about how can you cultivate that as a anchoring practice you know, what can you do 
And I really do think of it as a practice. It's not something that you can just sort of like tick off and be like, oh, I'm really great at that now. Like, like there's always going to be layers that get unpeeled. So I'm really proud of building a, a coaching practice around this phrase of intimacy being a spiritual practice. I love that. And it's absolutely true how many people in their attempt and desire to love their partner really well, they eventually learn of the work that they need to do on themselves in order to kind of like unleash or simply remove the obstacles of the love inside themselves that is preventing it from flowing to others. Absolutely. And I think people are less familiar with this intimacy to self that you're talking about versus intimacy with another person. So I'm almost wondering if you could, and I know it's really hard to like describe this kind of reality beyond words of what you are talking about when you use this term self. We've had a few like Buddhist teachers come onto the show and they talk mm-hmm. about both that we all have a Buddha nature, but also that the self is an illusion. There's this idea of an Anatman. We've had a yogi come on and they were talking about yourself being the Purusha or the soul or consciousness. And still we even had some like non-dual teachers come on and talk about ideas like the deep heart and how who we are is infused in everything. So what's your background for our listeners unfamiliar with your work and what you bring into this idea? Yeah, thanks for that question. I I love that you've had so many different perspectives on because I think that there are so many trails up the same mountain, I suppose. And for me, I spent 12 years in Chinese medicine. So I was an acupuncturist for 12 years. And in that practice, I gained this really beautiful education around Taoism. And so being able to understand nature, seeing how humans are really just a part of nature, seeing how even our emotional landscape is is essentially nature. And so when it comes to the things that feel out of balance, a lot of that goes back to, okay, so how does how does nature find balance within that? And how can we bring that into the human body? How can we bring that into the human emotional landscape? I eventually found my way to coaching because I was drawn more to the emotional aspects of things rather than working on people's bodies. So I do bring a lot of embodiment practices to my practice. But essentially, when I when I think about what the true self is, and this goes back to the spirituality piece that you were talking about, is I think that a lot of times we can approach spiritual practices from a place of like addition, as in, you know, I need to go study with this guru, or I need to listen to this podcast or read this book or take this training or be in this particular community. And the more and more I sit with my own spiritual practice, I find that it's been a more of a subtractive process in that it's about releasing the conditions that society has put on you, releasing those stories that perhaps you learned from childhood, those survival tactics that you learned from childhood and getting back to the true self or in Taoism, we call it the Tao. And the Tao, D-A-O, is the rough translation for it is path or purpose. And we are all born with this innate sense of having a purpose, having a path. And along the way, we sort of lose that way. And we have to, like every single one of us, we have to find how to access that subtractive process of spirituality to get to that true self. And 
and I think of true self in in my head as I'm speaking it out loud, I think of it with the with the capital S. And so who am I when I am being still? Who am I when I can release all those stories? And um, and I think that that's really what it comes down to. And if you can show up as that person in relationship, there is just magic that happens. Absolutely. I love those questions of inquiry that you just mentioned. You said, who am I when I am being still? And who am I when I have released all of my stories? And that's such a really wonderful practice, this level of sort of shedding layers of stories and tensions and tightness and ideas we have about ourselves in order to kind of discover this nameless, changeless, formless essence of who we are. And it's awesome to hear your background in Taoism. I love the Tao Te Ching. I love so many quotes from from the Tao Te Ching I love, but the one that's coming to mind right now is kind of this idea that the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. Mm-hmm. And this idea that there is something inside of all of us that we can't quite name, but we can discover and become by becoming still and shedding all those layers. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that it's more of a sensation more than like words that I can put to it. A lot of the work around Taoism and a lot of the work around Chinese medicine is about looking at your body as an integrated part of you. And so therefore, when we look at your signs and symptoms, instead of trying to suppress them or downplay them or ignore them, can we look at them as the storyteller of your life? And from that place, it becomes the breadcrumbs that leads you back to yourself if you're willing to listen. So, you know, if you're not living your Tao, if you're not living your path, your purpose, your body is going to let you know 100%. That's really awesome advice. And it's something that often comes up in my own meditation practice. And when I'm teaching meditation is people often will say things like, you know, I'm supposed to find peace in meditations. And right now I'm feeling like pain in my back. So am I just supposed to ignore it? And it's actually bringing a certain level of curiosity to our experience, which to me is so powerful. So when you like say something like, oh, my back hurts, it's like, okay, what is that sensation of hurt that you're experiencing? Like, where is it? Does it have textures and shapes and colors? And by going really deep into the nature of our experience, we get to learn so much just about ourselves and the nature of reality. And I think the piece there that you hit the nail on is um, the curiosity piece is so often we look at our bodies as things like, like, how can we control this? And so when you bring in that layer of curiosity and ask questions like you're asking in terms of like, what's the sensation? What's the, what's the location? What's the texture? That brings such a different conversation forward for people. So I'm very curious. what being empowered in our curiosity means. So this is like your work in the world. So if you want to find Kat Lee, just go to empoweredcuriosity.com, Empowered Curiosity on Instagram, hop on the Empowered Curiosity podcast. So for those unfamiliar with the kind of combination of these two terms, what is Empowered Curiosity? Yeah, I kind of came up with the business name on a whim, like the brand name on a whim. And you mean you were in flow with the Tao and it just came into your intuition. And and as the years have passed, I feel like it's become something that I've grown into. And for me, when I work with clients, 
that disempowerment piece seems to come through so much. And the place where people seem to struggle and find challenge is when you are in a stuck state, when you have unresolved traumas, when there are stories that you can't seem to release, your decisions and choices become very binary. It becomes a this or that sort of scenario. And it's hard to really see if there is gray, if there's nuance, if there is another fork in the road that maybe you aren't seeing. And so to help people get to a place where they can see choice is what I think about in terms of empowerment. And again, not like as a coach, my goal is not to layer my own thoughts and feelings onto you. It's really just to give you the machete so that, you know, you can hack away your own new path that you weren't seeing before. So I think that that's the empowerment piece for me. And curiosity is really the capacity to see choices. And to me, curiosity is, I think of it as like the antidote of fear, if that makes sense. Because I know that a lot of people say, you know, love is the opposite of fear. And But to me, in my own somatic experience, when I'm in deep fear, love feels so inaccessible. It feels like it is oceans away, but curiosity feels like a step I can I can make. So if I can take that first step into curiosity and then maybe take a pause and reassess and and again there's that piece of of choice and empowerment is can I see different choices from this perspective from this rock instead of the rock behind me? And I think curiosity Honestly, like I have a very specific feeling in my body when I'm feeling curious. I don't know if you have that same sort of experience, but I've played with this idea of curiosity so much that like I can recognize when I'm feeling that that tug and every time I've moved towards that tug and taken that that baby step towards curiosity, it's led me so many places in the world, you know, traveling, relationships, new people, even major shifts in my career. But I would say that the most important place that it's led me to is is really within. And when I can get curious about the process that is that like constant unshedding and unfolding and unraveling that we just talked about, you know, I can always come back home to the truest version of myself. And that's really hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I've I've built my Dow, built my career on this is is helping people get to that place where they can embrace that for themselves. Yeah, I was recently reminded of a teaching by a Buddhist teacher, Jack Kornfield, and he was saying how there's like two types of suffering. One is the kind we run away from, which is where most people are at. And the other one is the one we turn towards yeah. and are able to see and able to notice. And bringing that level of openness and curiosity to all of our experience ends up releasing its hold on us. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I think there's a beautiful author, Resma Menachem, who speaks really similarly of like clean pain versus dirty pain. Because to a certain to a certain extent, like life is going to be painful, especially if you're going to invite in love. Love is going to be painful. And so if it's clean pain, we can alchemize that. We can find a purpose. We can find a perspective for that. Um, when it's dirty pain, we end up sort of suppressing it, locking it into different parts of our body and holding it. And it turns into trauma, whether that's big T or little T trauma. 
And so there is that that piece of, okay, so this is painful. Can I make a conscious shift to move it into clean pain versus moving it into my body and and like locking it into my hip joints, for example? And that mutates into dirty pain. It shows up in all sorts of different ways. I'm sure that, you know, your work in working with people's bodies, you see it. I've been to yoga classes where I've sat on the mat and cried for 15, 20 minutes at a time. And it's because as the body is going through specific movements, when it's accessing different memories, when it's accessing things that you may have not been able to uh, really play with and understand and metabolize, it it has to it has to move. It has to alchemize somehow. And Absolutely. I am a little biased in my preference for yoga, just being a yoga teacher and all, because <laughs> for me and for a lot of people, it's just this really amazing gateway drug because people do come for the physical benefits. Like I'm very inflexible. I can't touch my toes. I'm going to do these deep stretches. And wow, the hips are just a home of tensions and unreleased emotions. And that's when those deep hip opener poses where people like feel those tears just coming out and like not in like a sad way, but just in a beautiful way. Like I'm finally releasing all this tension that I've been holding on to for so long. Yeah. And there's a reason for that, right? Like our psoas muscle, which connects our, you know, low back to our hip flexors like that, that psoas muscle is sprung like a spring. And so when you're in fight or flight, when you're in that sympathetic nervous system mode, it's going to tighten up and lock into place so that you can pump your legs if you need to run away from a bear or, you know, you can move away from a threat really quickly. And the difference is that like as human beings, modern human beings, we aren't running away from bears, but we are experiencing threat all the time, whether that is feeling threatened in a partnership or feeling criticized by family, like having deadlines coming up all the time at work that still to your nervous system feels like a threat. And so it's going to lock up that psoas muscle. And so that gets just locked up in your hip joints. So I see that all the time with my clients where you're like asking about the body and it's like, oh yeah, there's something here. There's something that needs to be released here. And that's why it's so important for me a lot of times to make sure that the client, students, teachers are involved in their healing and growth process. A lot of people expect to sit at their computer for 40 hours out of the week being in the high stress response and then get a one hour passive massage at the end of the week that's right. going to release their bodies of all that tension. Yeah, that's not what our bodies were designed to do. <laughs> not at all. So we've been talking about I love what you said earlier about how basically empowerment is all about agency, being able to see a range of choices and make the best one, which a lot of people do like come to coaching from that place is they are lost and they don't know which direction to go. And they're at, it's not like they have three choices and they don't know which one to choose. They're at zero choices. And finding that level of curiosity of being open of exploration also reminds me a lot of like the beginner's mind of like cultivating an openness to learning new ways of learning and new ways of understanding. So on your path and in your own path of curiosity of working with your clients, what are some lessons that you have discovered on your path? I think just mm, I think curiosity has led me so many places. I know that I'm in a in a state of fight or flight. I know that I'm in a sympathetic response when I can't see any choices or my choices are narrowed down to two and they both feel really shitty, right? And so the curiosity then becomes the 
the tool that I use to cut myself a new path. Because oftentimes there is a third path. We just haven't seen it past the brambles yet. And so I think that that's, that's my biggest lesson when it comes to curiosity is if I can wield that sword of curiosity, then I have the capacity to see a different path than, than my nervous system is really allowing me to see at that moment. Absolutely. There's just so much wisdom in how love, connection, positive feelings open us up and those stressful, negative, flight, fright, freeze responses close us down. That literally narrows our vision, both in how we're able to respond to our current situation, but also in the vision we have for ourselves and the world. And I'd love to shift for today's topic because I'm very, I'm very curious. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still, still quite curious how how all this kind of ties in together when we talk about self abandonment in relationships. Let's just go right into it. So what is self-abandonment? What does it mean to abandon ourselves? So if we can take it back to the first part of our conversation, when we were talking about all those conditions and stories and narratives that we layer onto ourselves, those are all survival tactics, essentially, right? And so when we are making decisions and choices from that place of what I think is going to look good on paper, of what I think is going to bring me accolades from my social circle, you know, what's going to make me look like a good girl to my parents. That's where you start self-abandoning. And in order to do that, you have to stop listening to your body, I think is one of the first things that happens. And, and so this is, you know, what we were talking about earlier is when you aren't connected to your true self, your body's going to show up in all sorts of different ways. And um, I can definitely speak from personal experience on this because before the age of 30, I had pretty much done everything that I quote unquote should do. You know, I had gotten married to my college sweetheart and opened up a practice in the way that, you know, school told me I should open up a practice. I had a really busy acupuncture practice. We bought our cars. We had our dogs. We bought our first house before we were 30. And, you know, on paper, everything looked great. And at the same time, I got to that top of the mountain and I was like, this doesn't feel good. For some reason, this does not feel good. And my coping mechanisms were drinking and binging out on television and buying too many things. And at the time I had this like, this horrible insomnia. Like I had been on all the drugs that you can think of for sleep and done all the acupuncture, done all the meditation. And my body was just like, nope, we're just not sleeping. And when you get to the top of what you think your life should look like and you feel like that, like that's a pretty hard place to be. Cause then at that point, it's like, where are the choices, right? You know, I have nowhere to turn. And really when it came down to it is the relationship, even though, you know, we were both good and decent people, we weren't good and decent for each other. And so in order to stay with him, in order to be in this relationship that I had invested so much time and energy and resources into, like I had to mold myself to become somebody who would be like the good wife for him. And that person was not who I was at the core. You know, that wasn't who I, you know, my true self is. And, and so this self-abandonment piece is, is really about how 
can you get back to that true version of you? And that relationship and intimacy with self has to come first before you can cultivate a relationship and intimacy with other people. And for me, it took it took a divorce, but in that divorce came a liberation. And I don't think it was a one-sided liberation. In fact, when when I look back on the relationship and, and look at how he, my ex-husband is doing now, like us getting divorced was the best thing for both of us. That was actually the truest version of, of our expression of love because it allowed us to be who we were. Because as much as I was self-abandoning, he was self-abandoning as well. And so we have a tendency to override our boundaries. We have a tendency to place ultimatums on our partners when we're in that place of self-abandonment, which is never a good place to create a trusting and loving relationship. So I think that that's where that self-abandonment piece gets tied into, you know, who are you as your true self and that relationship and intimacy to self, that spiritual practice that you have and that commitment that you have to yourself to go back to and remember and reclaim um, who you were before, like who you were as an infant. We all come into this world knowing who we are and then we sort of lose sight of that. And and through these trials and tribulations, we're being invited to, to come back to that. Yeah, absolutely. I resonate with so much of what you're saying right now. And I do think that Everyone is on this planet for a purpose, for their soul's purpose. And in yogic philosophy, we say you were incarnated into this form because you have a karmic role to fill out. You have your dharma. And no matter like what belief system you ascribe to, we do have to kind of discard what society and culture or our parents or what others say that we're supposed to be living and find out the way that we are rooted in our own passion and purpose and live the life that is true to ourselves, which is really challenging because society and culture put all sorts of expectations and desires about what is the right way to live in this world. Absolutely. And we have this, we are herd animals. And so we have this like innate feeling of wanting to be part of the herd. And so separation from the herd might mean like an actual feeling of, you know, abandonment or death. There's multiple deaths that we go through in a lifetime. And in the Taoist traditions, we we talk about being able to navigate through several ego deaths in a lifetime. And so as you are releasing these stories and conditions, if it feels like a death, that's because it is. You're releasing a part of you that no longer serves, a part of you that had served. And so we can't just, you know, say screw it and and shun that part of you and you know, abandon that part of you, but we do have to release with gratitude and release with, with, um, with grace. That is really true because one of the things that's hardest to do when living in line with our purpose is to go against the grain. And we even might experience a sense of shame if we're not doing what society is telling us we should be doing. And I do feel like this really taps into the importance of setting healthy, life-serving boundaries for yourself because part of that releasing of expectations of others and society is kind of like this level of like saying no. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm imagining like your parents telling you, you have to become a doctor 
And there's this thing, there's this little voice inside of you that says, no, you're an artist, like go pick up a paintbrush. And then you have to have the sort of energy and gumption to say, no, I understand this is what you want for me, but I'm going to live the life that I was born for and live true to myself. So what are the first steps in sort of setting up the appropriate separation from the forces that aren't aligning with who we are supposed to be in this world and to make those first steps from the heart in line with our purpose and where we're supposed to be going? Well, I think my favorite definition of boundaries is from Brene Brown. And she says that boundaries are really simple. It's really just what is okay and what is not okay, which upon first reading is pretty simple. But if you think about what all that entails, it's pretty profound, right? Because first of all, you have to know what you want. So many of my clients come to me having such loose boundaries all their life and catering to other people and being caregivers and being people pleasers that when I ask them, what do you want? They have a hard time answering that question. And sometimes what's more accessible is what you don't want But that's a really hard partnership to be in because then your partner ends up being, well, do you want this? Do you want that? And trying on all these sorts of different things. And they're just hearing no, 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 no. Instead of if that person can take a look within and be like, okay, so this is actually what I want. It becomes a more efficient, for lack of a better word, like it becomes a more efficient conversation, right? Because then it can be like, oh, okay, so I can show up for you in this way or that way. And it gives your partner autonomy to be able to do that. So I think that's the first piece is, is actually doing that, again, that layered work of releasing stories and conditions. So you know within yourself what it is that you want. And from there, you can state, am I allowed to say bad words on this <laughs> Yeah, you, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, you can say fuck yes or fuck no based on what your desires are and what your body is asking for too. You know, your body is going to have that resonance of like, yeah, this feels good or no, this doesn't feel good. And it's going to give you clues along that line. I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment that it is important to know what you want. And many people have no idea what they want which can stem from a lot of different things, you know, because it does take practice getting in touch with your desires and it takes courage also to express them in relationships. Absolutely. And it happens too, like in like couples counseling or coaching, you turn to one person and you say like, what do you want? And they say, I want them to be happy. And I say, what do you want? (laughs) It's like, well, I don't want to be in an unhappy relationship. Great. What do you want? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of my coaching sessions, I've had some that go exactly like that, where I ask them what they want for like 10 minutes until we can actually get down to a core of something that feels true and sacred for them. And I'm thinking about how we do find that appropriate balance in being true to ourselves and being true to others or being true to the person that we're in a relationship with, because sometimes these things conflict. My partner has their own needs and they're also trying to be true to themselves. So every relationship is this sort of intersection of two people getting their own individual needs met and seeking to meet and fulfill the needs of each other and the relationship. Because when we do set up 
boundaries, we don't want set up balls, right? So how can we make sure that what we're setting up is appropriate for ourselves and we're not just distancing or cutting ourselves off from connection? Such a great question. I think the piece there is that we need to zoom out a little bit because I think what you're talking about is boundaries versus ultimatums. And they're at face value, they they seem like they could be interchangeable, but they're really not on an energetic level. And when I think about boundaries, I do think of it as a collaborative process. And so there is that compassion, that understanding that your partner is doing their best. And so this example that you gave of like, I want to meditate for two hours every morning, but my partner can't provide that for me because the kids, you know, and life and all of that, that might be painful for you to hear, but that's not your partner being a bad person or being a shitty partner. That's just, there needs to be a give and take, right? And so with boundaries, I feel like it is like, there's less of a hierarchical structure. With ultimatums, I find that there is this hierarchical structure of like, you, I need this and you need to give that to me. And then underneath that is perhaps like an underlying sense of because you have wronged me in some way. I also think about boundaries as being beneficial to both parties. And so if I am given the space to connect to myself, it may not be necessarily two hours every morning, but if I am given the space to connect to myself, it's actually good for me and it's good for my partner. And so Whereas ultimatums feel very one-sided in terms of this is, I'm just thinking about myself and what my needs are. And so there's like an expansiveness that comes with boundaries. And I also think about boundaries as like communicating about your sovereignty. And, And so I think it's easier to think about it from the flip side is ultimatums is about controlling the other person. It's about defining the the rigid price that your partner has to pay versus when you are holding a boundary, it's about saying, hey, this doesn't land right for me. And what can we do together to make this okay? And how can we also make sure that your needs are met in that process as well? And so boundaries, if they are done well, is an invitation to a conversation. And there's this idea of like, creativity and the outcome, right? And so versus like ultimatums feel like it shuts down conversations because there's a fixation of what I want to happen, what I need to happen, and it needs to happen in this particular way. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. So much insight you just expressed there. I really love how you mentioned that ultimatums are about controlling the other person, which is something you see a lot. You see like a person say something like, if you don't do this, I'm breaking up with you. Yeah. Right. Then it becomes like, you know, a threat and kind of a way of manipulating the other person. But boundaries is sort of this co-created collaborative creation where you are creating a sort of system that works for both parties. And I was just thinking like, to me, one of the the easiest way to think of a boundary is like a teacup. Okay. (laughs) Because, (laughs) because, (laughs) (laughs) well, what is a teacup? It's four walls and a bottom, and then it's a boundary separating the tea from its environment. Yeah. Right. And it's good for both parties, right? It's good for the tea to be contained in this place and you don't want it to spill everywhere. 
So setting an appropriate boundary in a relationship is really good because for you, it allows you to like fill up your own cup. It allows you to have energy and self-love and a level of peace and calm that allows you to be better serving of your relationship in so many ways. And the piece there too, like just because I've worked with so many people is when you do not set boundaries, when you have loose boundaries, your partner sometimes doesn't even know they're crossing a boundary, but you're sort of keeping a running tally And then at a certain point, you set this like hard ultimatum because the 10 other times that you actually didn't express a boundary and your partner wasn't able to meet you and meet your needs, you end up getting fed up. And then there's this like hard ultimatum that happens. And so I think about sort of, as we talked about earlier of like when you hide or suppress negative emotions, it gets locked in your body and it mutates in a particular way. And oftentimes it comes up as pain. But when it comes to boundaries, when you aren't expressing and you aren't, you know, on a regular basis, like checking in and, and you know, even small things where, you know, he didn't take the trash out or something, when you are letting those things slide and, and it's really irritating to you, at a certain point, it's going to feel like, the lid is going to blow and and you have to set this like ultimatum. And so I think about ultimatums as being mutated boundaries in a way. So you tapped directly into what my next question was going to be, because I wanted to link together many of the ideas you have been talking about around how self-amendment sort of manifests, like how you sort of can notice when it's coming up. Because earlier you mentioned the people pleasers, the ones who are totally focused on other people that they have abandoned their own needs and desires. And then you also mentioned earlier that when we're not being true to ourselves, it shows up in our body. So what are like the symptoms of self-abandonment in relationships? Like what are some things that we will notice when we're not being true to ourselves? That is such a varied question, I think, because bodies are so different. We are in very similar little meat packages, but each one of our meat packages expresses things differently based on our physiology, our genetics, our history of where we might have kept stress in in our lives. And so I think the question I would put back to the listeners is, how does it feel like when you are under stress? And so differentiating out like the stress and the stressor, right? So like stress is what your body feels like physiologically, what it feels like in your body. And then the stressor is the thing that happens, the event. And so if the event is self-abandonment in relationship, you know, that's going to show up in a particular way. For me, it happened to be insomnia and migraines. Like that, that's just how I am wired. You know, I have a tendency to be really in my head. And so To me, it was no surprise that when my sympathetic nervous system is turned on, then I go into like hyper vigilance mode. And and for some people, it might be the opposite, actually. Like there are a lot of people who disassociate when they're under a form of stressor and that's how their body expresses stress. And so they might actually end up being really tired and fatigued. And so I think because we all have these different ways of expression, and our bodies are all so unique, the, this question can only be answered by the listener. And, and so I think that if we can plant any sort of seed in this, in this conversation, it's curiosity about what your own process is like when you are in a place where you feel like, even on a small level, like you're self-abandoning. Maybe you're not speaking up when he's not taking the trash out. 
maybe you're not speaking up when you would rather not go see the in-laws this weekend. Absolutely. What I'm hearing is that in order to kind of break out of self-abandonment, we have to become self-aware. We have to cultivate self-awareness because indeed, when certain stressors happen in our life, we respond certain ways. Like the same stressor, somebody might get really sad. Somebody else might get really mad. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) The point is that these are our responses. So by being aware of our triggers and by further being aware of our own embodied experience, we get tapped into our intuition. We get tapped into our heart and a place of love and self-kindness for ourselves. Yeah. So amazing, Kat. This time has flown by because you have piqued my curiosity in so many ways. Mm. (laughs) I feel like I could continue this conversation for a long time, but we are running low on time. So my last very curious question, I'm so curious how you're going to answer this question. It's the question I ask all of my guests at the end of the show, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? You had sent me this question beforehand and I put a lot of thought into it because I was like, how do I not just parrot back like a cliche love song <laughs> at this point? When I really sat down with it, it's it's that love is a constant and active process. And I know that there's that internet meme that floats around every once in a while that says like love is a verb. And I don't actually know what people are trying to say when they say that. But I think when I when I say that love is a constant and active process, it goes back to connection. So love is connection, but we all, because we're human beings, we all have wounds from connection. So when we act from a wounded place, it's easy to use love as an excuse for shitty behavior. And so, you know, if you get jealous, you might be saying, you know, I I just had to snoop on his phone or, you know, we've talked a lot about self-abandonment today. And so it's like, I have to do things that aren't in alignment with my own values, my own beliefs, because I love him that much and I can't lose him. So being active in love is about working on your inner child, correcting your ego stories, you know, working on your attachment wounds taking sovereign responsibility so that you aren't projecting because only then can love be this like collaborative process because when you are not armoring up, when you're not trying to protect yourself from the very relationship that you want to have and all that stems from your relational wounds, that's when you can actually be a good teammate. So it's practice. It really is. Absolutely. Very Taoist of you. Love is this constant flow, constant process. Oh, I love your perspective so much, Kat. Thank you for coming on to the show. And I already kind of talked a little bit about where people can find you. So is there things, what else would you want people to know about your offerings and where to find you in the world? Yeah. So as you said earlier, my website is empoweredcuriosity.com. I do most of my connecting with my community on Instagram. That's also at Empowered Curiosity. I run a group coaching program a couple times a year called the Heart Lab. And so that's 12 weeks of really, really profound material that we go through. And and I've seen such amazing transformations from deeper relationships to I've, it's a relationship program, but I've also seen people change up their jobs. It's really about like aligning with your Tao and, and really, you know, working on, on those deeper levels. Um, and then I also have a one-on-one coaching practice as well. So those are all the ways that you can find me and work with me. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kat, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember a lot. And we also hope you're remembering curious to learn more. But some things we hope you remember is that there is intimacy to other people and there is intimacy to ourselves. That empowerment is about agency, knowing your choices, and curiosity is our antidote to fear. So cultivate self-awareness by remaining curious Asking yourself questions like, who am I when I am being still? Who am I when I have released all of my stories? And when you do love yourself, you will set up healthy, life-serving, relationship-serving boundaries. Ultimatums are about controlling the other person, but boundaries are beneficial to both parties and part of a collaborative process. Love, too, is a constant and active process. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Kat. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 